We're having a good time, I think, with the study in Daniel. What do you think? Yeah, I'm enjoying it. I know that. So, in the first couple of studies on chapter 4, we saw where Nebuchadnezzar, interestingly enough, there was a 30-year gap between his first set of dreams, visions, and this new set. But once again, he has these disturbing night visions, dreams, calls on the wise men, the Chaldeans, to come and interpret. This time, he doesn't require them to tell him the content. Remember the first time, he said, you have to tell me the content of the dream and then interpret it. And if you can't do both, I'm going to kill you all. Well, you can't imagine a more motivating thing than that, but they weren't able to do it. And so they were all on the verge of being slaughtered when Daniel comes to the rescue. God gives Daniel all the information. You know, in the New Testament, my wife and I were talking about this the other day. Paul talks about the various gifts of the Spirit, uh, the word of wisdom, uh, word of knowledge. And that's where God actually will give you a piece of information that you have not been privy to. Many, many years ago, I was counseling a guy in our church up in Denver, and I hadn't really seen any tremendous outward indications, but in the course of our conversations and counseling and so forth, he was a pretty troubled guy, single guy, and he had done a really, really good job of hiding the fact that he was gay, homosexual. But the Holy Spirit one day just spoke to me and said that, that that was his number one issue. And so I gently brought it up to him, and he was pretty astounded and blown away that I would know that. How did I know that? Because he had worked really hard to cover it up. But it, it actually opened up a, an opportunity for me to minister to him. He was blown away by the fact that I could gain that information without having been told by him or anyone else. And so the word of... Word of knowledge would be the New Testament uh, comparison to what Daniel was getting. Also, another gift of the Spirit is prophecy and interpretation and so forth. So these things were happening even in the Old Testament to certain individuals like Daniel. And so, uh, once again, the king calls for Daniel. When the other guys couldn't give him the interpretation, this time he doesn't threaten their lives. He simply turns to Daniel, who was uh, reliable and faithful in the previous instance. Daniel tells him the whole deal. Well, the king tells him what the dream was. Daniel tells him what it meant. And then, as we come to this final section of chapter 4, we see what happens. Because as we know, this vision or dream that the king had of the high tree, and then a holy one, a watcher from heaven, comes down and tells the king that this tree is going to be cut down to a stump, but it will be restored ultimately. And Daniel says, you, O king, are the tree. And that's where we'll pick it up here in verse 29. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time in your word. We ask that you would bless the study of your word. You give us insight, understanding, and application as we study this passage in Daniel together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So interestingly, we start off here in verse 29. At the end of the 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar, he, Nebuchadnezzar, was walking around the royal palace of Babylon at the end of 12 months. So basically, God gives Nebuchadnezzar 
Remember Daniel had told Nebuchadnezzar, if you will humble yourself, if you'll break off from your sins and be righteous, do what is right, perhaps God will, you know, give you favor, extend your rule, your reign, your power. And so apparently what's happened here, God has given Nebuchadnezzar a whole year, 12 months, a grace period between the prediction of his madness, which is what it will break down to, and its occurrence. And this is yet another reminder to us that God is gracious and long-suffering. God gives him a grace period. It's a reminder to all of us. It's an encouragement to us. It should be that God is gracious and long-suffering. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, in the New Testament, 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack or slow concerning his promise. Now, why does Peter say this? The context of this passage is Peter's talking about the mockers and the scoffers in the last days who will say, where is the promise of his coming? All things continue on as they always have. They're saying, oh, you guys have been talking about the second coming of Christ forever, and he hasn't come yet. And we're definitely living in those days because it's been 2,000 years. And Peter warned about the mockers and the scoffers. But what's really interesting when you dig into that passage in 2 Peter chapter 3, in my opinion, my interpretation is, Peter is not talking about people out in the world mocking and scoffing about the return of Christ. He's talking about people in the church. And throughout my entire Christian life, particularly from my teen years when I recommitted my life to Christ until the present time, I have always heard people say, oh, I don't believe he's coming all that soon. I think we've got a long ways to go. Why would any Christian ever say that? The Bible is full of passages that tell us he's coming at any moment. Be ready, be watching, be ready. And yet I hear believers for the last 50 years saying, oh, I think you guys are getting too worked up here, too excited. You're too focused on the, the, the rapture, the coming of Christ, we just need to focus on everyday life. Really? Where did you get that theology from? Because it's not in the Bible. Okay? And so that's Peter's context here. For all you mockers, all you scoffers, let me tell you why Jesus hasn't come yet. Now keep in mind, this is in the first century. And Christians were already getting restless Where's Jesus? I thought he was coming. Where's Jesus? But here we are 2,000 years later, and that questioning has turned into apathy, lethargy, complacency, and people get so caught up and focused on their everyday lives, they don't even think about Jesus coming anymore. And yet that's the most important thing we could ever think about. The, the soon return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter writes, in, in, that, in light of that, in that context... The Lord is not slack concerning his promise to come. As some count slackness, which means slowness. God's not dragging his feet. He's not slow to keep his promises, to keep his word. But is long-suffering toward us, patient, not willing that any should perish. So anybody that has this attitude that God hates me and has a terrible plan for my life, he can't wait to send me to hell. No, it's just the opposite. He's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish. Do you realize, you know, people say, well, if God's such a loving God, why does he send people to hell? He doesn't. 
Everybody makes their own choice, their own decision. Did you know you can choose where you get to go? You can go to heaven or you can go to hell. I'm not telling you to go to hell. <laughs> I'd like to see everyone here go to heaven. And God would too. He's your creator. He's your loving heavenly father. He's not willing that any should perish. People talk sometimes about God's perfect will. Now, brother, sister, you really think that's God's perfect will for your life? Well, God's perfect will is that no human being would ever go to hell. Did you know that? But that all should come to what? Repentance. What does that mean? Turn and go the other way. Instead of following your own path in life, seeking self-gratification, the gratification of the flesh, you repent, you turn, and you begin to follow Jesus. Jesus said if, uh, you have to take up your cross and follow him. That cross is the cross of self-sacrifice. Jesus denied himself. Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. He did not deserve to die. But he denied himself in order to be our sacrifice. And that's the cross he's calling us all to pick up and to take. Denial of the flesh. Denial of self. Take up your cross and follow me, he says. That is repentance. And so Peter tells us here, God is patiently waiting for as many human beings as possible to repent, to turn from their sin, just like Daniel challenged Nebuchadnezzar, cut off your sins, take up righteousness, and perhaps God will give you an extension. Here's an example from the Old Testament of the Lord's long-suffering and patience. Now, even as we look at these scriptures we do find that at some point God's patience can run out. The Lord speaking to the people at the time of Noah's flood. Remember now in Genesis 6 we're told that the whole entire human race had become totally corrupt, totally evil. We have the sons of God coming down cohabitating with the daughters of men producing these giants, these Nephilim, these hybrids angelic human hybrids, evil. And we're told in Genesis 6 that the attitude of men's hearts had become nothing but evil all the time. And so the Lord said, Genesis 6, 3, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. Meaning there comes a time and a place where God says enough is enough. For he is indeed flesh. Man is flesh, not God. He is flesh. In other words, he is imperfect. He is sinful. Yet his days shall be 120 years. 120 years for what? To repent during the time that Noah and his sons built the ark. The whole time they're building that ark, they're preaching to the people around them, warning the people about a coming judgment. And even in that day and age when Everybody except Noah and his family was pretty much evil. They were gone. God gave them 120 years, longer than the modern human lifespan, to repent because he's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. And then we have even to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 15, 19. Therefore, this is what the Lord says to Jeremiah, if you repent... I will restore you that you may serve me if you utter worthy, not worthless words. 
I'd like a lot of these modern preachers to hear this. If you utter worthy, not worthless words, you will be my spokesman. Let this people turn to you, but you must not turn to them. Tell them what they want to hear. You've got to be faithful to me. So even Jeremiah was called to repentance, and God promises restoration. See, what happens oftentimes when we mess up, when we blow it, the enemy will use that against us to discourage us and tell us it's all over, you might as well forget it. And I've seen that happen to a lot of people. They were once excited about God, excited to serve God, and then they have a stumbling, a falling down, a failure. And rather than allow God to pick them back up and restore them and keep them going, they just give up and they turn away. It's a very sad thing. It's the wrong thing. God will never give up on you. But I have seen people give up on God. And then we have the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation, Revelation 2.5. Jesus tells them, and of course, the church of Ephesus had much to be commended for, but consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, your light, your ability to impact and affect your community for Christ. So again, he's calling them to, he'll call the non-believer to repentance. He'll call the believer to repentance when necessary. But he is patient and long-suffering. But God just gave Nebuchadnezzar 12 months. And look what happens here in verse 30. Well, first of all, to finish off verse 29, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. Uh, one translation says walking on the roof. And this would be possibly be the top terrace of his famous hanging gardens. Have you ever heard of those? The ancient hanging gardens of Babylon. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it's quite possible that's what he's doing. He's up there walking around, checking out his amazing hanging gardens. And in verse 30 he says, It is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty. Wow. In spite of being repeatedly informed by Daniel and company that his power and authority and right to rule had been given to him by God, he insists on taking all the credit for his achievements and even stating that it was all built for the glory of my majesty, for his own glory. And this is after God gave him 12 months to search his heart, to cut off his sins, to repent. It sounds a lot like someone else we read about in the Old Testament who also got quote, too big for his britches. This is from Isaiah 14, and it's understood just about universally by Bible scholars, theologians, teachers, that this passage is a reference to Lucifer, to Satan, the fallen one. And here we read Isaiah 14, 13. You have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, the stars being the angels, I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook kingdoms? Who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities? Who did not open the house of his prisoners? 
And so a bit of a revelation concerning the rise and fall of Lucifer. Also we were reminded of Nimrod who attempted the same thing when he was building the Tower of Babel. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, sit on the mountain, and so forth. We see that throughout human history. We see it here with Nebuchadnezzar, and very soon we will see it, hopefully from the balcony, when the Antichrist comes to power. Proverbs eleven twelve: when pride comes, then comes shame. That's coming for Nebuchadnezzar here in just a moment. But with the humble is wisdom. We often mistake, I think, Pride, pomposity, audacity for wisdom, but they're not at all the same. With the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's coming here in a moment for Nebuchadnezzar. Proverbs 29, 23, a man's pride will bring him low. And I'm sure we've also witnessed that in our lives. We may have even experienced it in our own lives to some degree as we've allowed pride to creep in and it wound up bringing us low. A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. All right, verse 31. While the word was still in the king's mouth, while he's still shooting off his mouth about how great he is, kind of a Stuart Smalley on steroids, looking in that mirror, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. In fact, they worship you. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. So God speaks directly to him from heaven. That's it. That's the final straw. Your grace period's over. You're a meadow muffin. And it reminds us again of the world of Noah's day. God gave warnings. He raised up Noah and his family to call the people to repentance. They ignored him. I'm sure they mocked him. They laughed at him. I mean, there'd never been a flood. In fact, from what we understand, there'd never been rain as we now know it because the earth was encompassed by a moisture belt According to the book of Genesis, the dew would fall at night and keep everything nice and hydrated. But then the waters of the deep burst forth from under the ground. The rains from heaven came down. The people had never seen anything like that. They thought he was crazy. You're building a boat on dry land. But God gave them 120 years to repent. Then we think of Sodom. We think of Israel and Judah how God gave them warnings. They refused to take heed to those warnings and they were ultimately taken into captivity. And then, of course, as we studied the book of Revelation, we studied all about the end times, the tribulation, the uh, Babylon system of the last days, the political, economic, and religious system collectively referred to as Babylon and how great will be its fall. There's much precedent, past, present, and future, for what we see here. So, the kingdom has departed from you, much like what happened to King Saul when he was disobedient and prideful. 
And God told him, Samuel, the prophet Samuel told him, the kingdom has departed from you, it's been given to another, to David. So verse 32, they shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen. And seven times shall pass over you, seven years, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour. Have you ever heard that expression? He never knew what hit him. Right? And see, that's another thing here. Nebuchadnezzar had 12 months. He could have gone either way. He could have changed his ways. He could have repented. He had, could have broken off from sin and taken up righteousness, but he chose not to. And so as we go through life, there are those who think they're getting away with things, right? You know, they think, well, you know, if there really is a God, he's a loving God, certainly he's not going to punish me. And I don't think he exists anyway, and I can do whatever I want. And he's got bigger fish to fry. Believe me, at the end of the day, he's going to fry every fish. <laughs> every fish that doesn't turn to him will get fried, okay? But people think they're getting away with stuff because maybe you go through life, and maybe you do bad things, and nothing bad seems to happen to you. In fact, it even seems like you're getting away with stuff, and you're actually benefiting or profiting from your dishonest, immoral activities. I guarantee you there's a lot of powerful people in the world today just like that. They think they've got it made in the shade. They're getting away with it all. Nobody can stop them. But then all of a sudden, while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. That very hour, the word was fulfilled. God does give people a chance. He gives them a grace period. He gives them warnings. But there comes a point in time when the flood does come. The time does come when Nebuchadnezzar is going to find out how the cow eats the cabbage. And it's here. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagles' feathers and his nails like birds' claws. So as I said, God gives warnings, God gives grace periods, but when judgment finally comes, it comes hard and fast. And that's exactly the message we've studied in Revelation. Jesus talks about in Matthew 24, other passages in the New Testament. These are the signs to look for. These are the signs to watch for. But it definitely speaks throughout the New Testament that as we get closer to that time, there will be an acceleration. And I think we're seeing the acceleration right now. That very hour, the word was fulfilled. And as I said, even now, God is issuing warnings to this world which have largely gone unheeded. Major warning, 911. For a very brief moment, people seem to be perhaps turning back to God. Didn't last very long. AIDS was a major, major issue back in the day when it first broke. Lots of people dying, no cure, no answer. Those who suggested that it might be God's judgment for the immorality of homosexuality, Jerry Falwell, I think James Dobson too perhaps. There were 
several prominent Christian leaders that said that, and they really got raked over the coals for it. And now, as they've come up with ways to fight it, doesn't seem to be quite as deadly. But then now we have another issue with monkeypox, again being traced back to that community, being swept under the rug. We've got the COVID-19, some call it the scamdemic. Tsunamis, hurricanes, tornadoes, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, food shortages now. Who would have ever thought in America that we would experience food shortages? Did you ever think about that? We're so spoiled going through our supermarkets and our Walmarts and all Costco's and Sam's Clubs and just rows and rows and rows of shelves just jammed full of all kinds of food. The produce department, the meat department, and all of a sudden... You go into the store, the shelves are half empty, and you can't always find what you're looking for. Is that another warning from God, another message from God? Food shortages, oil and gas shortages. Oh, but by the way, Californians, please don't plug in, don't plug in your electric cars. We're short on electricity. <laughs> don't plug them in. You've got to buy them because we're not going to give you any more gasoline and oil. And we're going to ban gas-powered automobiles. You've got to buy an electric car. Oh, but don't plug it in. Uh, have you ever heard the, the term or the phrase, the inmates are running the asylum? That's exactly where we're at today. If you have an electric car, God bless you. But I've read a lot of articles about all the problems with electric cars, including exploding in your garage. And Oh, the new uh, Hummer. They have a new electric Hummer. And if you happen to have to plug it into a quick charger, because it'll only go 200 miles, it'll cost you $100 to charge it. <laughs> yep. Man's pride will bring him low. Pride goes before destruction. Let them eat cake. Let them buy electric cars. Oh, gee whiz, you got a problem with the gasoline shortage? Buy an electric car. Oh, they're only $70,000, $80,000 at the minimum. No problem, right? Oh, but you've been unemployed for two years because of the pandemic? Oh, well... Sorry about that. Crazy, crazy. Political and economic collapse we're seeing, including right here at home. You know something about our founding fathers who are now being um, denigrated, erased, trashed? They never intended for the people of this nation to be afraid of their government. They intended the government to be afraid of the people. Did you know that? It's absolutely true. But now it's the other way around. Because they can come anytime for any reason. I better watch it. <laughs> so he was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. Now some commentators believe that King Nebuchadnezzar was stricken by a mental illness, I think he was, called 
zoanthropy. Zoanthropy is like from the word zoo. Zoanthropy, which means he believed himself to be an animal and acted like one. That definitely sounds like some of our politicians today. He believed to be himself to be an animal and he acted like one. And there's even some Christian groups that have been engaged in this kind of behavior. Clucking like a chicken, barking like a dog, slithering around like a snake in some of these questionable gatherings and uh, blaming it on the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit says, no, thank you. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar admits when we get there in verse 36, he admits that he was indeed insane. And I've, wow, that confirms something I tell you guys all the time. Sin will make you crazy. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. So living out of doors like a wild animal, the dew would fall on him each night for seven years and then his hair became so long and tangled that it looked like an eagle's feathers and his nails are so long and gnarled they looked like claws. It kind of sounds like Howard Hughes in his final days. If you've ever read about, studied about, watched movies about Howard Hughes, and he was definitely mentally ill. He, his appearance became very much like Nebuchadnezzar's here. And again, how did he start out? As someone famous, powerful, wealthy, intelligent. Some would say a genius. And look how Howard Hughes wound up, just like Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 34, but it does get better, folks. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. Remember the story of the prodigal son? I love it because when he finally does come around after his life of flagrant sin, debauchery, self-indulgence, hedonism. Remember the, the prodigal son went to his dad and demanded his inheritance early. He was in a way kind of saying, Dad, I wish you'd hurry up and die. But since you haven't died, I want my inheritance now. The loving father, now you might say, well, if he was so loving, why did he give this kid the inheritance knowing he was going to go off and squander it? Because people have to learn their lessons for themselves, don't they? We can try to give people good guidance, good instructions. Believe me, as a pastor of many years, I've experienced this. You try to guide people and lead them in the right direction, but oftentimes... They go the wrong way anyhow, and they have to learn the hard way. So the prodigal son, after he's finally there eating slop with the pigs, remember how he wound up? The Bible says he came to his senses. God restored him to his right mind. He kind of went off the deep end. And ultimately, it resulted in him coming back to God, to his father, his father in the story represents God the Father. So here's Nebuchadnezzar. I lifted my eyes to heaven. My understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. Amen. So at the end of the seven years, which by the way, interestingly enough, is also the length of the end times tribulation. At the end of seven years, he lifts his eyes to heaven, his understanding returns to him. Or one translation says, literally, I believe it's the NIV, it says, my sanity was restored. 
And again, this is something that we can take great comfort and encouragement from. Because listen, somehow in the midst of his insanity, his spirit was able to respond to the Spirit of God and his mind was restored. It was God's judgment or chastisement that put him there and it was God's grace that brought him back. If you've ever worried about a friend, a loved one, a family member who seemed to be off the deep end or on the verge of death or what have you, be encouraged. It doesn't matter what condition a person is in. The Spirit of God can reach them. Don't ever give up. Don't ever give up. As long as they're taking breath, God can reach them and He can touch them and He can restore them and He can heal them and He can save them. Just like He does here with Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar's declaration here has four elements. One, he declares that God is the Most High rather than himself. He declares that God lives forever. He is eternal, which is sound theology. Thirdly, that his dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom is forever, unlike Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, which will come to an end. And fourthly, that his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And this lines right up with proclamations that we see throughout the scriptures from those who know and love Jehovah God. So as we had previously seen, Nebuchadnezzar was partially there. He began to give some glory to God, some praise to God, but he was still a polytheistic idol worshiper. And the number one idol that Nebuchadnezzar worshiped was himself. It's hard to worship yourself when you're crawling around on the ground eating grass and you look like you have eagle's claws and feathers and so forth. So he finally comes to his senses. And then he says in verse 35, All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? No one can restrain his hand. The Antichrist will learn this lesson the hard way. In Revelation 19, beginning in verse 19, when Christ returns to the earth with us, with the saints, it says, I saw the beast, the Antichrist, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him, Jesus, who sat on the horse and against his army, that would be us. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. The sword is his word. He's going to destroy the armies of this world who come against him at the end of the tribulation with his spoken word. Just like he created all things in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth by divine fiat. That means by the spoken word. God says it and it is. And only God can do that, by the way. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Remember I said God's going to fry all the fish at the end? So, uh, unless you want to be a fish out of water, you need to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. 
And then Nebuchadnezzar also takes note of the fact that who can say to God, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar learned what many today have yet to learn. No human being has any right to question God. Ours is but to trust and obey. And I know sometimes believers do that. Why God? Why did you do this? Why did you do that? Why did you let this happen? But I'm telling you, you will be a much happier person if you learn to trust and obey. Trust and obey. Romans 8, 28. How many things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose? What is it? All things. Even the things you don't like. Even the things that bother you. Even the things you don't understand. Is God's word true? What does God say? All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Boy, that's a much better way to live, folks, than always going around questioning why this, why that, I don't understand. You are a finite human being with a relatively small brain. You might as well get used to the fact that there's going to be a lot of things in this life you don't understand. But guess what? Paul says... When I see him face to face, I will know him even as I am known. The day will come when he will impart to you and infuse within you all knowledge, all understanding. If he did that now, your brain would explode. You know, it literally would explode. So be patient. When you don't understand something, just take comfort in the knowledge that God's in control. Verse 36, at the same time, my reason, my sanity returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me, my counselors and nobles restored to me, I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me, but this time he knows, he realizes, he understands that it all comes from God. Just like the prodigal son in the New Testament who came to his senses, repented, returned to his father, and was restored to his former status. Now, some people might get offended. Well, I don't get it. After all Nebuchadnezzar's pride and arrogance, now I could understand God forgiving him, but actually restoring his kingdom? Don't you think that's a little bit much? It's the same thing where people get offended at the idea that somebody could be in prison for murder, rape, what you name it, and get saved. People get offended by that. That's, that's not fair. Why would God forgive them? Because he's a loving, gracious, merciful, heavenly father whose son Jesus died on the cross for every sin that anyone could ever commit. And since none of us deserve his forgiveness, that means all of us can receive it. You see? It's not based upon our worthiness. It's based upon his righteousness, his love, his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness. And so you know what? If God wants to restore Nebuchadnezzar to all of his glory, that's God's business, right? And now Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges that compared to God, he's nothing. The people of this planet are nothing. God is everything, so God graciously restores him now as a believer over the Babylonian Empire. Excellence, majesty was added to me, he said. Excellent majesty. And he says it became even greater than before. In the, I believe that's the NIV again. Excellent majesty was added to me, became even greater than before. 
God takes great delight in exalting those who exalt him. God takes no pleasure in taking down the proud, but he can and will do it. He will also forgive, restore, and exalt those who humble themselves before him. So now, verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. No more self-praise here. All of whose words are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Nebuchadnezzar's I know firsthand because he did it to me. So 30 some odd years into his reign, fat and sassy, with the whole world at his feet, Nebuchadnezzar had to answer to God for his pride and arrogance. This might seem like a long time to us, but to God it's just a blink in eternity. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. This ties in with what we talked about earlier. People think they're getting away with stuff. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. It's just that some crops take longer to come to fruition than others, right? Weeds grow up very quickly, but these seeds of evil, of wickedness, sometimes they take a long time to come to fruition. But whatever a man sows, he will also reap. And by the way, those who think they're getting away with stuff, that's a sad thing because you'd be much better off to come under God's chastisement now than to come under it in eternity when it will last forever. Although God had placed Nebuchadnezzar in power, Nebuchadnezzar spent many years taking credit for his own accomplishments and there finally came a time when he had to reap what he'd sown. It may not come today or tomorrow or the day after tomorrow, but sooner or later, God's going to hold every one of us accountable. That's what his word says, Philippians 2.10. The name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, those that have already died. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The only problem is, if you wait till the afterlife to bow your knee, it will be too late. It needs to happen now in this life. Romans 14, 11, it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. So everybody now in this life who refuses to bow, you're going to have to bow anyway. The thing is, it won't do you any good then. Every tongue shall confess to God, so then each of us shall give account of himself to God. And that should be a sobering thought for each of us. Remember, I mentioned earlier another king, King Saul, was driven mad because of his disrespect for God. But unlike Nebuchadnezzar, interestingly, Saul was a lifetime worshiper of Jehovah, supposedly. He was an Israelite. But unlike Nebuchadnezzar, he never repented, even though God gave him many opportunities to do so. And ultimately, we know what happened to Saul. He fell on his own sword rather than be defiled by the enemy. Here's the thing, guys. Please try to understand this. For God to allow the disobedient to go unpunished and the obedient to go unrewarded for those who may think, well, what benefit is there to worshiping God? Read the end of the book of Malachi on that one. For God to allow the disobedient to go unpunished and the obedient to go unrewarded. Again, a lot of times believers in this life, they say, well, I've tried so hard to be faithful to God, to follow God, Look at me, look at my life. This guy over here, he just does his own thing. 
goes after the flesh. He's got all these things, all this money, all this wealth, all this position, blah, 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 and I have nothing. So what good is it to serve God? That's the theme at the end of Malachi. But at the end of the day, it's not he who has the most toys when he dies wins. It's he who is in right relationship with God. For God to allow the disobedient to go unpunished and the obedient to go unrewarded would result in his name being mocked and that, my friends, will never happen. That will never happen. Galatians 6.8 For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. And that has to do with eternity. Those who reject Christ in this life will spend eternity in a living hell an eternal state of corruption, if you will. Again, no one will know, fully know how horrible that will be until they get there. Just like we won't know completely how amazing and wonderful and incredible it's going to be to be forever in the presence of God. Well, you know what? For those who follow Christ, it's going to be incredible. It's going to be amazing. We can't even imagine how wonderful it's going to be. But for those who don't, Anybody who thinks that they fully understand the horrors of hell, you don't. And you won't know till you get there. The thing is, you don't want to get there. You don't want to be there. You want to be with God in paradise for eternity. He who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good. Why would Paul say that? Because sometimes we grow weary in doing good, don't we? Sometimes we grow weary in doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Matthew 24, 12. Because lawlessness or wickedness will abound or increase, the love of many will grow cold. This is another end times prediction from Jesus. And again, by the way, my understanding is he's speaking about believers here. Because of the increase of lawlessness or wickedness in this world, the love of many will grow cold. We have to guard our hearts and minds against that, folks. We have to guard our hearts and minds that that does not happen to us. What did we read in Galatians 6, 8? In due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. This is what it means to lose heart. The love of many will grow cold. These are the times we're living in, the last days. We need to hang in there. Don't lose heart. Jesus is coming soon. Let's stand. Let's pray. Let's bow our heads. If you have a prayer request, please raise your hand. We'd like to lift up your prayer request to the Lord. Father, you see every hand. You know every heart, every mind here this morning. And even those who may be watching online, Father, that have prayer requests. We lift them all up to you, God. We're so thankful that you hear our prayers because we come in the name of Jesus. Lord, you told us if we would ask anything in Jesus' name, the Father would hear that prayer. We thank you that we serve a living God who hears our prayers, answers our prayers. Lord, maybe not always in the time frame we would like or even in the way that we would like, but as we spoke of today, Father, all things work together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. So now... We come in faith, trusting in you. We talked about trusting and obeying. 
We're, we don't have any right to question you. Our place is to trust and to obey, but you've also given us the opportunity to express our hopes, our dreams, our desires, our needs. Lord, there could be the need here this morning for physical healing. We lift up everyone with a health issue, whether it's allergies, asthma, COPD, cancer, leukemia, whatever it might be, Lord. We are so thankful that nothing is too difficult for you. With God, all things are possible. And so we lift all these afflictions up to you. Arthritis, Lord. Our bodies are frail. They don't last all that long, 70 years, 80 years, if we are fortunate. But we know that we have eternal life in Christ. And we're thankful for that, that one day we will receive our eternal, immortal, imperishable, glorified bodies. But right now, Lord, we're still in the weak ones, and we need your touch. We need your healing. Lord, we know that you are loving, gracious, merciful, heavenly Father. We pray for healing for everyone here this morning who has a need in that area, God. And even for someone like Liz who struggled with an open wound that has been difficult to heal. Lord, something that seems to be small can turn out to be big. So we lift it all up to you. We pray for encouragement for those who are afflicted. We pray for hope. We pray for strength. We pray for patience and endurance. Most of all, we do pray, God, for healing in Jesus' name. We pray not only healing for physical ailments, but also for mental and emotional issues. Lord, we know that in the world we're living today, that is a major thing, Lord. Anxiety, depression, fear, worry, doubt, anger, bitterness, resentment, jealousy, unbelief, unforgiveness. Lord, these things can really take us down. Lord, as needed, we repent for any of those thoughts or feelings that we have that we know are not from you, Lord. They're not from the Holy Spirit. They're either from the world, the flesh, or the devil, and we renounce all those things in Jesus' name. And we pray for healing, for hearts, for minds. You said you came to heal the brokenhearted. We ask today, God, there could be someone in this room that's feeling totally brokenhearted today. We ask you to heal them, restore them, strengthen them, or someone watching online, God, pour out your Holy Spirit upon them. We ask in Jesus' name. And Father, we pray for broken relationships. Those can really weigh us down too and, and just tear at our souls when we know there's, there's something between us and someone that we care for, that we care about, a friend, a family member, a loved one, a, a marriage partner, a spouse. Lord, we just ask you to bind the enemy as he would come against marriages in this church or those that we're in relationship with for friendships. Lord, we ask that friendship and fellowship could be restored, that marriages could be restored. Lord, we ask that because we know that you are able and capable and willing of doing that. And we thank you for it. Help us to grab onto it. Grab a hold of that healing and restoration that's available to us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then finally, Lord, we pray for financial issues. We mentioned this morning that one of the ways that you get our attention is through these kinds of trials and tribulations that are coming upon us now in our country, things we never thought would happen, food shortages, fuel shortages, uh, money shortages. So we pray for provision, Father, that we could give you the praise and the honor and the glory, just like Nebuchadnezzar finally did after he came to his senses and regained his sanity. And he realized, Father, that it's all about you, it's all because of you, and it's all for you. Lord, help us to have that same mentality, that same attitude. And we do pray, God, that you'd provide and help us to so support one another, encourage one another, Bless one another and help one another whenever we possibly can. Help us to stand together in these last days. And we do trust you for our provision. 
We thank you, Lord, and we praise you in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.